Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, page 11 in the Red Pew Bibles. Genesis 14, page 11. As you turn there, I need to address something I overheard this morning. A few of you noticed the cuts on my eye, the bruising on my cheek, and I've already been hearing some whispers, things like, I guess that's what happens in the office when you make Lee repeat herself. So let's be clear, Lee did not do this. Or at least that's what I've been told to say. <clears throat> In all seriousness, I was wrestling with our dog, and the dog won. <laughs> so that's what's going on there. Genesis 14. Mothers probably have the best chance of following today's passage. Uh, mothers are, generally speaking, a little better trained, a little more experienced in a text like we have today, because it's a text that's filled with all the intertwined relationships of the world, and moms get that on a regular basis. You know the scene, the child, the preteen, that fifth, sixth grader burst into the, burst into house. Mom, Melissa is furious at June. June was seen talking to Jim, but Jim's friend Steve said that Jill and Heather were mad at June, so that means June and Melissa are fighting, but really Steve's to blame. So Melissa and Jill and Jim got in a fight at recess with June and Steve and their friends Juan and Cameron, but the teacher broke it up and they all got detention. Moms have lived that. Not sure exactly how to follow all that's going on in that conversation. This text is going to feel that way to a lot of us. So the moms might be able to follow it, but for the rest of us, I'm going to try to unpack it as we go through, and we'll see if we can't make some sense of this. But first, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord's guidance and understanding his word. Lord, we don't always understand the point of your word, so show us. We often miss the application to our lives, so lead us. And it is not in our human nature to obey, so humble us. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Genesis chapter 14, Genesis 14, reading... Uh, the whole chapter. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketelaramir, uh, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma, uh, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Zedim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelaramur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So let me stop. The four kings listed in verse 1, and I'm not going to reread all those names, um, they form one alliance, one which many of the commentators refer to as the Eastern Alliance. I probably should have put a map in the bulletin this week, but I, alas, I did not. So Abram is in Canaan over here from your perspective. The Mediterranean Sea is over here. Abram's in Canaan over here. Remember the old Fertile Crescent from middle school world history? And over here is where Shinar and Elam and those other verse one locations were. So it's to the east from Canaan. Okay, so that's what we've got going on there. Verse 2, those kings are the, the what we might call the uh, uh, Western Alliance. 
And we got to quickly comment, none of these are kings, as you might be thinking of, like European history. They do not rule over uh, uh, empires. They don't even rule over nations, truly. These are city-states, okay? And most of them not all that huge by today's standards. Those kings in verse 2 would have been around the what we would call today the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, the southern end of the valley of the River Jordan, um, and uh, what we're going to call our Western Alliance. So we see in verse 4 that the region in the, the Western Alliance had been under the control of Ketelirimer of Elam, uh, one of the eastern kings. This region that, uh, of Canaan and Abram was constantly under the control of other uh, kings in other areas. So the Western Alliance got tired of that arrangement. Basically, they got tired of paying the tribute tax, okay, having to send their boys to fight in his wars. They got tired of that arrangement, and they rebelled in the 13th year. Now, of course, what would happen back in the ancient world when the subjects rebelled? Verse 5. In the 14th year, Ketelarimer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphim in Ashtaroth Karnim, the, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kirithim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. None of those nations play into this in a direct way. Rather, those are places along that fertile crescent. So we said that we have this western alliance near where Abram lives, we have this eastern alliance, but they don't march directly across because that's all desert. Armies could not traverse that. Rather, they followed the fertile crescent and came in. Well, what we're reading here about is all the places they conquered on their way through. Now, why are those listed? Why do we even care? Well, the point is this. This is a formidable military force that's coming into the land. They have weighed lace to every city along their path. Verse 7. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. They turned back. Basically, the idea is they went past where they need, went all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and a little further south to Kadesh. In other words, they secured their rear flank. Then they turned back inland to attack this alliance of Western kings. Just a military strategy not to have any enemies at your backside. Um, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of uh, uh, Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketelaramer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, uh, Shinar is the ancient name for Babylon, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Some of them fell into the tar pits, basically means some of their men. It's probably not the kings themselves falling into the tar pits, and for sure we're going to see at least one of the kings again. Uh, so uh, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot. This is like that mom listening to that story going, finally, a name I recognize. Finally, I have some anchor point to connect to what's being told to me. Now we begin to understand why we're hearing any of this. 
They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went on their way. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite. Uh, Up till now, the oaks of uh, Mamre, we weren't sure what that meant. Now we find out that this was in a territory of a particular person, Mamre the Amorite. Brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So as the battle looms before us, Abram is not going to have to enter the battle all alone. He's got allies. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 318 may not sound like a lot by today's standards, but that is a significant force back then. And it speaks to the wealth and power and uh, position of Abram in this culture. Uh, despite the size of his force and despite the fact that he had two allied kings, we're still probably looking at a military force significantly smaller than the evading force from the Eastern Alliance. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. It was unlikely he was going to win in a traditional open field battle, and so he uses guerrilla tactics at night, divides his army and attacks from two sides. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelaramir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, this is somebody new, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, nutrients, uh, uh, sustenance, but luxurious sustenance. It's a generous meal. He was priest of God most high. A couple of comments, and we will come back and reinforce these in a moment, but right now, Salem means peace. And so this king of Salem, this king is arriving without having been previously involved in the battles. So this king of peace, maybe Salem, was ancient Switzerland, you know, stridently neutral, didn't get involved in the battles of the surrounding peoples. That may be part of that name there. He is priest of God most high, and while it's tempting To read into that, we've got to keep in mind that every pagan culture has a high god. The Romans had Jupiter, the Greeks had Zeus, the Egyptians had Amun-Ra. They all had their chief god. So most high god at this moment isn't really all that informative to us, but wait and see what happens. Verse 19, And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who was who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Well, okay, that now settles it. This is the true God. This is Abram's God. This is Yahweh. Abram would not be paying honor to a pagan god. He would not be worshiping with the priest of a pagan god. 
a pagan priest. Melchizedek is the priest of God Most High. He's the priest of the Most High God, Yahweh, Abram's God. And notice how Abram worshipped. He tithed. He gave a tenth of everything. Don't let anyone tell you that tithing belongs to the Old Testament law and therefore it has ceased to have any purpose or value. This is some 600 years before the Old Testament law was given. And we see that tithing was part of the practice of worshiping. It has always been true. Um, it is not an invention of later times. And notice how he gives it uh, to God's priest, to God's servant, to God's human representative as the means of giving it. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamri take their share. By the laws of that time, as the conquering general, everything belonged to Abram. He had a right to all of it. But the glory of God was more important to him than his rights. And he did not want God's glory to be tarnished by this crooked guy, this king of Sodom. And so he chooses to give up his right for the sake of the glory of God. He allows his allies to take the portion that is rightfully theirs. He allows the men who fought to be paid for their time, but he takes nothing. This ends the reading of God's inerrant and authoritative word. Just as you might have listened to that breathless sixth grader and hoped to be able at some point to latch on to a point, you hoped that they were going to bring their story to some meaningful purpose and conclusion. More than that, you probably hoped that when they got there, you'd recognize that they had gotten there. I know with my own children, there were more than a few times where I could tell from their body language they'd arrived at a conclusion and I hadn't figured out what it was. We weren't there together. But we need to wrestle with this text and see if we can't figure out what its purpose is. What is the point to which it arrives? Now, you'll notice from some of the uh, uh, the Old Testament, New Testament reading in our bulletin, some of the hymns that were selected, when I first looked at this weeks ago and started picking out the supporting text and the hymns, I thought this text had a decidedly militaristic feel, and it does. But as I began to wrestle with it and prepare and pray over it and to study it and to consider it more closely, I really think uh, it's got a, a slightly different purpose here. I think the point is this. There's one main point we need to take out of this text. God's plan, God's purposes, and God's promises are unstoppable. God's plan, God's purposes, and God's promises are never thwarted, never stopped, never derailed, never stalled. God's plan, God's purposes, God's promises are unstoppable. And we see this play out in two aspects. 
There's going to be a future aspect, but first we see a fulfillment aspect. The fulfillment of God's promises and purposes becomes the basis for believing in the future of God's promises and purposes. So let's real quickly look at the fulfillment You know the little catchphrase that investment houses will use, uh, past performance is no guarantee of future uh, success? The opposite is true with God. The scriptures constantly hold up God's past performance so that you will believe in his future success. When it comes to God, past performance is a guarantee of future results. So let's look at that past performance. Let's look at the fulfillment of God's promises as they are revealed in this text. God knows our faith is weak. He knows that if all every promise was only way out there, way out in the future for some day, if that was the nature of all promises, we would struggle. We need a down payment. We need something concrete and tangible. We need a good faith gesture to believe that these promises really will come true. Now, we shouldn't need that. The word of God ought to be enough. And yet God accommodates, he condescends to who we are, and he gives us these reassuring things. So we're reminded when he called Abram, Back uh, chapter 12, when God called Abram, God promised to make him a great nation. And we see that being fulfilled in this text. And again, we've got to take our minds away from the modern view of great nations and put ourselves back in that ancient world. This once wandering nomad has begun to settle there. He's settled long enough that he's made alliances. He's settled long enough that he has been able to raise up a huge population of people who live under his authority, who are part of his household. So large that he's got 318 able-bodied soldiers. That means if you do the math, he's got probably upwards of somewhere around 2,000 or more people who are part of his household. He has, for all intents and purposes, become a city-state. He is essentially the king of his own city-state. The promise to, to be a great nation is being fulfilled. More than that, what did we see? He defeated the alliance from the east. And the alliance from the east had defeated the five kings that were regionally near Abram. I don't know if there is a transitive property of war, but if there is a transitive property of war, if A defeats B and B defeats C, then A can defeat C. Abram was superior to the Eastern Alliance, which defeated the Western Alliance. He is being portrayed here not only as a burgeoning city-state unto himself in this region, but as the premier city-state in this region. Abram is becoming a great nation. The promises to Abraham included the promise of blessing. I will bless you, God said to Abram. That's happening. In Egypt, his sin in Egypt led to his financial success. And interestingly enough, in last chapter, when he and Lot were having some uh, problems in the family, that family dynamic, 
Well, Lot ended up settling in a place that brought all kinds of trouble. Abram ends up settling in a place that's producing all kinds of benefit. He has benefited from the family dynamic that was causing problems. And now we see here that he has the benefit of capturing all of the wealth of these conquered kings. Abram is blessed by God. And God says to him, I will give you a land. He essentially, at the end of chapter 14, he has the right to control all the people of his region. They are his possession by the very fact of the he won the battle and took possession of them. Now, he lets them go. He doesn't hold them as slaves. But he did essentially have the right to control that entire region. God says to Abram, I will make your name great. There are literally kings, plural, lined up to talk to him by the end of chapter 14. His name is great. The kings of Sodom and of Salem are wanting to hold court. They want an audience with Abram. What else did God promise? He said, you, Abram, will be a blessing. And I will curse those who curse you. Well, was Abram a blessing? Lot's going to think so. The people of Sodom are going to think so. The allies of Abram, I will bless those who bless you. The allies of Abram, they get to take their share of the loot. And I will curse those who curse you. The enemies of Abram would testify that they were cursed. The promises of God to Abram are beginning to be fulfilled. They're beginning to play out. Fulfillment is a big part of this text. And it's certainly a part that applies to our lives. This record is here in part so that you and I will learn to believe. So that we will recognize that God does fulfill his promises. Now, don't get me wrong. In the unfolding of scripture over the millennia, there is this thing called progressive revelation, that God begins to evolve and change how he reveals himself. The core message doesn't change, but what he chooses to reveal does. So then the early days of revelation so that we would believe, so that we would understand, the picture is often very concrete. It's very tangible. Salvation is often portrayed in very plain here and now ways. God frees his people from slavery in Egypt. God frees his people from the Philistines. And we see God's salvation being very concrete, the very this world. So much so that we got to be careful we don't make the mistake that the ancient Bible scholars made. For when the Savior came to save his people, they assumed he was going to save them from Rome. They looked at this God saved Abram from the Western Alliance. God saved the, uh, the Israel from Egypt. God saved uh, 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 David from the Philistines. So Jesus is going to save us from Rome. Now, we mustn't make that mistake. This is not a health and wealth gospel. 
Rather, we have to recognize that God did save then, and he did act in concrete ways in Abram's life so that we would come to believe him. We would learn to trust him. We would recognize that he is a God who does deliver and does do what he says he will do. And so we have to recognize these are not promises that we will have material blessing in this life. This is not a promise that every one of our family disputes will turn out with great blessing for us here and now. But rather it is a picture that God does deliver upon his word. So we can believe what he has said will yet happen. So what are the promises of God that you're struggling to believe? What are the things that you're having a hard time accepting? That God will work out all things to the good of those who love him? He kept his word to Abram so that you would be encouraged to believe him today. Are you struggling with guilt, doubting that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Believe it. God fulfilled his promises to Abram. Do you believe that love covers over a multitude of sins? Don't doubt it. The love of Christ does cover your sins. Do you wonder if he really has gone to prepare a place for you? Abraham, the great example of faith, he arose out of a man of doubts and fears. He became a man of faith because he saw what God did. Friends, we need to see what God has done in the life of Abram and believe in our lives. The promises he makes to us are as sure as those promises made to Abram. This text does not merely point backward, though, to past fulfillment. It also points forward to the future. We see fulfillment as the foundation so that we will believe in the future. The text introduces this enigmatic figure, this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In this sermon, I typed his name about 40 times and still misspelled it almost every single time. It's a weird name. Melchizedek. Um, he appears just in these three short verses here, um, in the, at the, near the end of chapter 14. That's it. That's all we know about this guy. Later passages of the Bible make allusion back to him. But when it comes to his life and times and where he, this is all we know about him. He is a mysterious figure. But in Psalm 110, by the way, Psalm 110 is the answer to this trivia question. What's the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, David brings up Melchizedek. And then we get to, and when he's talking, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming of Jesus, about the Messiah. So this comes up in a messianic psalm. And we fast forward to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews. Hebrews is by far and away the most Christological book in the Bible. There is no other book of the Bible that is so plain and bold and centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ than the book of Hebrews. And three chapters Melchizedek is mentioned, and one of them, he's the main feature, chapter 7 of Hebrews. 
So it's interesting, when the Bible, both Old and New Testament, when the Bible gets around to talking about the Messiah in some detail, it comes back to this guy, Melchizedek. So let's see if we can't maybe unpack this a little bit. Some of it is given to us in Hebrews 7. So that you don't think I'm making this up, let me read for you a portion of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is, so where we have the author of Hebrews kind of retelling the story in summary. He is first by trans, I'm still quoting Hebrews. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Let me stop and interrupt there. That we have to recognize. Melchi Ezedek, Zedek is righteousness, Melchi is king. Uh, Melchizedek is king of righteousness. That's literally what his name means. Let me jump back into Hebrews. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Salem, it doesn't quite sound the same to us with our vowels and stuff, but in terms of the Hebrew language, it's the same root letters as shalom, peace, S-L-M, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. So he is the, by name, the king of righteousness, and by title and position, the king of peace, the author of Hebrews is telling us. By the way, let me interject this also. Let me teach you another Hebrew word. It's the word heru. In English, it's got a J at the front. In Hebrew, it's pronounced with more of an H sound, but jeru. So that means city. Jeru means city. So if you have the city of peace, you have jeru Salem. Jerusalem. And it is generally recognized that this, he is the king of the ancient city of Jerusalem. There's a lot going on there. (laughs) Let's keep going with the book of Hebrews. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The author of Hebrews has a lot to say about this guy, Melchizedek. We can't possibly say all that needs to be said about him, but let's at least unpack some of this. So I already mentioned his name, King of Righteousness. I already mentioned his title, King of Peace. And it's not hard to see how how those would conjure up for us Jesus. So much so that some scholars look at Melchizedek and say that he is a theophany, an appearance of God to man. Some scholars take this description of Melchizedek and they look at John 8.56 where Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And some scholars have said, this is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a Christophany. I'm not sure that we should go that far. Not sure it's heresy either. Okay, But what we can do for sure is look at how Melchizedek is definitely a a type, a kind of Christ. The theological word that's used is a type. A, A person, an event, or a thing in the Bible which foreshadows the person or work of Jesus. 
a type. Clearly, he is a type. Types set out categories or kinds, which then Jesus later fulfills more fully. So they are not the actual thing themselves, which is one of the reasons I think we probably don't need to see this as actually the pre-incarnate Jesus. But the scriptures do see Melchizedek as an important picture of Jesus. Now, where do we see these things? King of righteousness. Remember that in his name. Isaiah 9-7 talks about the fact that the Messiah will come and sit on David's throne and he will rule over the kingdom of David in righteousness. So Isaiah picks up on this idea that the Messiah will be a king of righteousness. When the Messiah is finally ruling, he will rule without partiality, without favoritism, without prejudice. He will rule in righteousness. Melchizedek's name is kingly, but his title, king of peace, we already said. And of course, Isaiah again uh, picks up on that. Isaiah calls the Messiah the prince of peace. And again, don't be overly Western. Don't force your distinction between king and prince. For in the ancient world, those distinctions would not have stood up. Many a prince had every right that his father had. Many a prince would sit on the throne and rule. And in fact, the single biggest problem with biblical chronology is the co-regency, the co-ruling of prince and king at the same time. Scholars can't always figure out when one reign ended, when another one began, because they couldn't tell the difference between the prince and the king. We might see a distinction between those two in the West. There would have been no distinction between those two in the ancient world. The king of peace, king of Salem, and the prince of peace in Isaiah's prophecy are easily the same person. And again, arguing typologically, not literally, the author of Hebrews makes this point that Melchizedek had no earthly parents and no uh, uh, earthly demise. He seems to be this figure that has always been, pops into the scene, then vanishes to continue to be. Like Jesus. Like God incarnate, who always was, who steps into the scene from nowhere seemingly, and then who goes on and continues to be after leaving the scene. But the biggest point in Melchizedek's life and in his appearance here with Abram is really not these details. Rather, it's his relationship to Abram. His relationship to Abram is what we really have to see. He blesses Abraham. He receives tribute from Abraham. Melchizedek was Abraham's superior. Now, you got to think like a Jew for a moment here. Nobody is superior to Abraham. How can anybody be portrayed as superior to Abraham? And that's why this figure captures the imagination of future biblical writers. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 110. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's page 602. Actually turn there. I'm only going to read one verse, and you're saying to yourself, well, I can just listen to one verse. But you need to see this verse for it to make sense. Just hearing this verse leads to some confusion. Psalm 110, verse 1, page 602 of the Red Pew Bible. Now look 
as I read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at those two words, Lord, L-O-R-D. Notice they're not the same. This is where you couldn't just listen because they sound the same. I suppose I could have tried to emphasize it. The Lord says to my Lord, you know, but it's not quite the same. The all caps, the first Lord there, that is the way English Bibles render the proper name of God. The second one, capital L, lowercase o-o-r-d, is the word for master, um, ruler, the one in charge. So let me uh, uh, modernize this just a little bit. Yahweh God says to the one over me. Yahweh God says to the, to the one who's in charge, sit at my right hand. Now, think about what David is writing right there. David is saying that there's someone over him. King David, the guy in charge of all of the people of God, is saying, my God says to my Lord, my God says to my ruler, my God says to the one over me, sit at my right hand. This is why David goes on in Psalm 110 to bring up Melchizedek. Because he's making the point that there's one superior to him. I'm King David. I'm the one God anointed to be the ruler over his people, and there's one superior to me. My Lord is out there. My boss, my ruler, the one to whom I'm answerable. And he's in heaven, sitting down at the right hand of God. That's why he then brings up Melchizedek. Because he's saying, I am not alone in this. Our father Abraham was also under one. There's a, a character superior even to father Abraham. That's what we're supposed to see here. You see, this figure who tells us about Jesus, this figure who foreshadows the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the priest of God most high, the one who would come and comfort God's people, the one to whom God's people pay tribute, the one who God's people honor, the one who God's people, from whom God's people take nourishment, bread and wine, He's coming. He's foreshadowed here. And why here? If he's the king of Jerusalem, he's just up the road from where Abram lives. And Abram lives there for decades. God could have had these two bump into each other anytime. Why here? Because a whole bunch of promises have been fulfilled to Abram. The promises of blessing the promises of uh, uh, being a great nation, the promises of making your name great, the promise of cursing those who curse you, the promise of blessing those who bless you. All of these are being fulfilled in Abraham's life. It's a high time for Abraham. It's a time when he's really believing this new God of his. And so God steps in and says, and I want you to meet the one to come. I want you to meet the one who will one day be your superior 
David's superior. Everybody's superior. You're believing in me right now, Abram. You're buying into my promises. So let me tell you about the one I'm promising. That's the message to us. Look at all the ways that God fulfilled the promises in the life of Abraham and recognize that he will fulfill all the promises that still await us in the greater Melchizedek, in the high priest who came and took his place, who fulfilled all that he promised. This really is a chapter of encouragement and hope that our God delivers on what he says. The promises and the purposes and the plan of God are never thwarted. They're never stopped. They're never stalled. They're never derailed. We can believe our God. Lord, we do believe you. We are encouraged by all that you did in the life of your servant, Abraham, and all the ways that you blessed him in this passage. And then you went further and introduced him to one who foreshadowed Jesus. As we sit on this side of the cross, we recognize that you continue to keep your word. You have continued to be a faithful God. And so we are renewed this morning in our faith, in our trust. We believe you. Thank you for the the encouraging word. Thank you for the message of your promises fulfilled. Thank you for this word to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.